Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. At Emmanuel Croydon, we exist to be a community drawn together by our desire to know and follow Jesus. We long to become disciples of Jesus who are equipped to serve him in the whole of life, transforming families, communities and workplaces as we love God with heart, mind, soul and strength. We hope you enjoy this week's talk from the morning services. Thank you for joining us today. Grace and peace to you. Our reading this morning is taken from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon... Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion. It had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being. And the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims, and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little horn, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes, like the eyes of a human being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked Thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 
10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Peter. Beautifully read, as always. When one looks ahead to the passage for one's final sermon <laughs> at a place where one has ministered for several years, one usually hopes for something light and fluffy. <laughs> Perhaps Psalm 23 or the parable of the lost sheep, maybe the fruit of the Spirit. What one, as a general rule, and I, I confess this is a generalization, <laughs> does not hope for, is a passage revolving around a gruesome vision with four ghastly beasts, a river of fire, and a talking horn. <laughs> Still, I'm always up for a challenge, so we'll give it a whirl. Here we are in Daniel chapter 7, and if you've been awake at all over the last uh, six weeks, you'll have noticed we've been working through the book of Daniel. Now, we're really just over halfway through, but this actually is the end of the series. But Daniel chapter 7 is, in many ways, a bridge between the first part of the book and the second part. Or, in fact, we might more accurately say, between one book and another, because actually these two parts of Daniel are two separate volumes written maybe 300 years apart that have been kind of sewn together. And at the first six chapters uh, take a narrative form, so they tell the story of what happened to Daniel and his friends during the, reign of, the reigns of King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, King Belshazzar, and King Darius. And these, uh, this, this, these chapters were probably written not too long after the events themselves. But then in chapters 7 to 12, we have um, uh, passages which are not narrative really at all, but rather recount visions that Daniel had uh, during the, the time of the reigns of King Belshazzar, King Darius, and then King Cyrus. And probably those chapters were written down 300 years later, so we're talking maybe 200 BC or 180 BC, during which time, and this will be important later, the Jewish people were being subjugated by the Seleucids who were part of the Greek uh, empire. 
And so um, this chapter 7 is kind of a bridge between those two bits. There's a little bit of narrative, but then really this is, the, um, this is Daniel recording his vision. So we've gone slightly back in time from chapter 6, where King Darius was king, back to when Belshazzar was king. And Daniel was having a dream. So what do we need to know about this dream or vision? Aside from the fact that clearly Daniel ate far too much cheese before bedtime, uh, there's a couple of things we need to know. So firstly, this is an apocalypse. Now, when we think about apocalypse, we tend to think about you know, the end of time and so on. And of course, there is sort of a bit of that here. But actually, originally, an apocalypse is a literary genre where a heavenly reality is revealed to a human recipient. A literary genre where a heavenly reality is revealed to a human recipient. And that is what's happening here. So God is revealing something about a heavenly reality to a human, Daniel. So it's an apocalypse. Secondly, it is an eschatology. So an eschatology is a divine revelation which looks ahead to the time when God will um, kind of act uh, within our world to usher in his eternal kingdom. So this is an apocalypse and an eschatology. Do feel free to use those words around the water cooler at work tomorrow, uh, if that even still exists. You'll be, you'll be sure to impress your friends. But that's what's, going, that's what's going on here. And the final thing that we need to know before we look at the vision itself is that when we are seeking to interpret these kind of visions, we actually need to do so in a way that's a bit similar to, uh, to the way that we interpret uh, Jesus' parables. So we need, to, first of all, to, uh, to look at the whole kind of uh, arc of what's being said. What's the overarching point of, of this vision? And what are the key bits of symbolism within it? Um, a, a bit like with parables, what we don't need to do necessarily is go into every tiny little detail and say, well, that relates to that, and that relates to that, and that relates to that. Sometimes that is not helpful. There's a reason why these are visions and dreams. It's because they're pictorial, and we need to interpret them in some kind of a pictorial way. What are they symbolizing? What are they pointing us toward? So let's do that. Let's have a look at this vision. Daniel's vision begins... Uh, with the four winds churning up the sea into a maelstrom. Now, if you know anything about Jewish uh, literature, you will know that the Jewish people were not a seafaring folk. In fact, they were petrified of the ocean. So actually, as we look through the Bible, whenever we see something relating to seas or oceans, we know that it is symbolic of chaos. Uh, We can see that in the book of Jonah. We can see it right at the very beginning in the book of Genesis. So at the beginning of this vision, we have chaos. Emerging out of this chaos, we have these four gruesome beasts. And they really are gruesome. They're pretty grim. They're all a bit different to one another, but they're all fantastical, ghastly creatures. Now, today, Peter just read up to verse 14 for us. Uh, The passage goes on, and a bit later on, a messenger of God reveals to Daniel some of the symbolism of the vision. And so we know that these four beasts represent four earthly kingdoms. And we can presume, I think, that they relate back to the same four earthly kingdoms um, that King Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about in his dream of the statue. Do you remember that big statue, golden head, silver, arms and torso, bronze, uh, belly and thighs, and uh, legs and feet made of iron mixed with clay? And back then, I posited that the four kingdoms that that might relate to were 
um, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. And so there's a good chance that these kingdoms are the same as that. The only problem is that actually it, it looks like actually the fourth kingdom here, the fourth beast here with the ten horns, might relate to the Greek Empire. Don't forget, it was at that point that these, uh, these, these, were written, these visions were written down and the Greeks were being subjugated by these uh, Greek uh, overlords. So it may be that the Median and the Persian Empire were split into two rather than being held together. But you know what? I don't think it really matters for us today. Actually, what matters is the symbolism that these are brutal, ruthless kingdoms. This is a representation of Earth and all the pain fear, worry, anxiety uh, that, that goes on in the world. So we have these four beasts. And then we have this weird little horn who pops up. So the fourth beast has ten horns. We're told they represent ten kings. And then this little horn pops up, displaces three of those other horns. And then we begin to see in the vision that this horn has human eyes and a boastful mouth. I don't know what it is about that, but I don't know about you, but I find that image more frightening than all those beasts put together. There's something about it that is grim. It's a little horn with, which displaces the other ones with human eyes and a boastful mouth. Again, there's all sorts of conjecture about what exactly that might relate to. Is it a Greek king or a Roman empire or Hitler or the Antichrist? We don't know. What we do know, I think, is that this little horn represents evil. What the Bible might call sin and death. Those things that we see in the world around us and that in some small part we see in our own lives as well, which are evil, which are bad, which do not bring light or life into the world. So that's the first part of the vision. We've got chaos We've got these earthly kingdoms representing brutality, and we've got uh, this horn representing evil, sin, and death. Daniel, we're told in chapter 15, sorry, in verse 15, was troubled. And no wonder. That is a grim picture, isn't it? But I wonder, as you look around at the world, whether sometimes you feel a bit like that. Or whether sometimes when you're coping with things in your own lives or in the lives of others, you feel like that. But fear not. The vision turns. And into the vision we have the Ancient of Days. And this is uh, God the Father. And there's some glorious bits of symbolism here. So he comes with thrones representing majesty. He comes clothed in white, representing purity and goodness. He's got white hair and beard. Uh, by the way, who'd have thought it? Those uh, stereotypical visions of God that we all mock so much of God with white hair and beard, you know, floating on a cloud somewhere. Well, they've got their roots in the Bible. Here we go. Uh, but this white hair and beard, I think, represents wisdom. We've got fire all around, representing purifying, cleansing, and purging. We've got a wheeled throne. Have you ever heard of a wheeled throne? I don't think, I don't think I've heard much about a wheeled throne. Wouldn't, you, wouldn't the Queen love to have a wheeled throne, don't you think? Can just imagine her ragging it around Buckingham Palace, getting stuck in corridors. What is doing one's impression of Austin Powers, etc., and so on. I can just see it. Anyway, there's a wheeled throne, and 
I think that represents kind of movement, activity. God is not stationary or static, but is active within the world. There's a courtroom representing justice. This is a God of justice. Uh, there are people worshipping God. So there are thousands, I think, 10,000 times 10,000. Any mathematicians in the house? A hundred million, very sharp, exactly. I don't, the number's not particularly important, but millions and millions of people worshipping God. He is a God worthy to be worshipped. And one of the things I love about this vision is that the Ancient of Days comes into it really quite casually. You know, there's all this chaos, hate, pain, evil going on, but he just comes in and starts going about his business. This is a God of power, authority, and might. So we have here a God of majesty, of justice, of purity, of purifying, of wisdom, of power and strength, of a God who is active within the world, and a God who is worthy of worship. Amazing. And sure enough, he begins to set about his business, and he throws this this horn representing evil, sin, and death, into the river of fire. There's a cleansing, a purging, a purifying going on here. This bit always reminds me of that fantastic 90s worship song by Stuart Townend, Who Paints the Skies into Glorious Day. I'll be honest with you, it's not aged well, and Stuart wouldn't be seen dead singing it now. Uh, but it's got, it's got a great groove, and the chorus is great. Talking about God, it says... He is wonderful, he is glorious, clothed in righteousness, full of tenderness. Come and worship him, he's the prince of life. He will cleanse our hearts in his river of fire. I love it. So God immediately sets to work with this cleansing and this purifying, this making things new. And then into the vision comes one like a son of man. So this is Jesus entering the fray. And he comes in, and God gives him all authority, sovereign, and power. And they establish a kingdom that will never end. A kingdom that in sharp contrast to those kingdoms that we've seen in the first part of the vision is a kingdom founded on love and hope and joy and peace and goodness. So, in this vision, we have God bringing order out of chaos bringing peace where there was brutality and bringing hope in the midst of trouble. So what does it mean then for us? How does this relate to our everyday lives? Well, look, I figure that you probably need one last tandem story uh, before I go. You're going to be glad to get rid of them, but I'm just going to shoehorn a final tandem story uh, into this final sermon. A couple of years ago, Matt King and I did the Caterham to Canterbury cycle ride. It was on a blisteringly hot day. We started off relatively early in the morning, and the first part of the trip takes you from Caterham down in the valley up to the very top of Botley Hill, and it is a real grind. Um, If if you've ever been on a tandem, you'll know (coughs) that um, on the flat and downhill, tandems are brilliant. Uphills, they are horrible. Uh, because you're just taking so much weight. If you're me and Matt on a tandem, you're taking well over 30 stone uh, of weight up a hill. So it's a real grind. But it was first thing in the morning. The sun wasn't too hot quite yet. We were fresh. We made it to the top of Botley Hill, and then, gloriously, the next two hours are just a cruise all the way down to somewhere near Maidstone. And we absolutely blitzed it, feeling pretty cocky, pretty good about ourselves. 
We stopped for an early lunch at a place, I think it was Aylesford maybe, um, and then it all went horribly wrong. I don't know if it was something that they put in the sandwiches, <laughs> or if it was just that the sun was unbelievably hot, definitely the hottest day of that year, or whether we just hadn't taken on enough water, or whether we just frankly weren't as fit as we thought we were. But the next couple of hours were hell. The sun beat down hotter and hotter. The hill, which basically seems to go all the way from Maidstone to Canterbury, in fact, it seemed to go on for 700 million miles, got steeper and steeper. And we got slower and slower and slower. It was humiliating. People were walking past us. Babies were crawling <laughs> past us. A mobility scooter overtook. There was a, a snail that flipped us the bird as it was shot past on the outside. It was, it was awful. It was hell on earth. And we got to a point there was a grassy verge. And I've never seen this before or since. Matt literally just fell off the tandem onto the bank. And I followed straight behind. We were dead. And at that point, I just wanted it all to end. I didn't care about getting to Canterbury. I wasn't interested. I just wanted the pain to stop and the misery to end. Well, somehow, after a break and probably some jelly babies, we got back on the bike and we continued on our way towards Canterbury. And there came a point where we were probably still maybe 10 or 12 miles outside Canterbury. But Matt just began to tell me some of the things that we were passing a church here, or a village there, or a crossroads, or whatever it might be. And I spent 12 years living in Canterbury, so I know the surrounding areas quite well. And so I began to recognize where we were. I began to see, uh, in my mind's eye, these, these places. And each one that Matt gave to me was like a little sign of hope. And as those signs of hope embedded themselves within me, they gave strength to my legs and fortitude to my mind. And where I thought I wasn't going to be able to make it, somehow I was. Matt, of course, much fitter than me, so he was fine anyway. And sure enough, eventually, 10 or 12 miles later, which kind of at the point before those signs of hope felt like a million years away, we made it to this beautiful place called Westgate Gardens, where, uh, which obviously I couldn't see a couple of years ago, but having seen it from Canterbury, I knew it to be a place of just beautiful, bright green grass, gloriously multicolored flowers, and a, and a river running through it. I mean, if that isn't a picture of heaven, I don't know what is. It was amazing, and we have made it. So back to Daniel's vision. I think this vision gives us a bit of the whole narrative arc of history, from chaos to order, from brutality to peace, from trouble to hope. But it also speaks into our lives now. And this is something that I've preached about a lot. As Christians, we live in the now and the not yet. We live in the now. We live with all that pain, fear, anxiety, worry. We can see in the world around us brutality, anger, death. And it's hard. Like Daniel, it's okay for us to be troubled. There are parts of the world around us which are pretty grim. And also, for each of us at various points in our life, and maybe for some of you right now, there are parts of our own lives or the lives of those whom we love which are miserably hard and tough. We are not called to ignore those or pretend they don't exist. 
They are real, and they're part of our experience and our life. But we also can look towards the not yet. This glorious vision of a kingdom founded on love and hope and joy and peace, where God rules over it in majesty, justice, purity, wisdom, goodness, power, authority. It is a glorious kingdom, and that is the hope that we can look towards. But the truth is, that is the not yet. And here we are in the now. So how do we cope with that? Well, I want to say we cope with that by finding the signs of hope all around us. You see, anything in life which points to God's eternal kingdom Anything which promotes love, justice, hope, purity, peace, goodness, joy, faithfulness. Anything that expresses those things and points towards that glorious kingdom is a sign of hope in our life. And just as, as Matt uh, spoke those signs of hope into my life on the tandem, so those signs of hope, as we spot them, give strength to our legs and fortitude to our mind and equip us with what we need to carry on. And those signs of hope can be all sorts of different things. Maybe it's a blossom on a tree or the blooming of a flower. Maybe it's a verse of the Bible which suddenly comes alive and makes sense. Maybe it is a loving act in the midst of a sea of hate. Maybe it's some peace being found when all around you is chaos. Maybe it's a kind word or a gentle smile. Signs of hope. And so I want to ask, are you on the lookout for those signs of hope? Because they are all around us. Because God's glorious kingdom is breaking into our world. It's breaking in time and time and time again. And when we see those things, we find hope to, f- to face our current day and to look forward to that glorious kingdom. But you know what? Even more than just spotting signs of hope, Actually, as we allow our hearts to be cleansed in God's river of fire, we ourselves can be signs of hope to others. Actually, in many ways, that's the point of the church, that we might be signs of hope to one another and to our community out there. And so, perhaps, this isn't such a bad passage to have as a final sermon after all. Because it gives us something of the sweep of history and God's cosmic plan, bringing order from chaos, peace out of brutality, brutality, and hope where we see trouble. But more than that, there is an encouragement and a challenge. This is something that I'll be praying for you as we go from this place, that you would continue as individuals and as a church to find those signs of hope all around. And that you would grow in being signs of hope to one another and to the community here in South Croydon. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Emmanuel Croydon Podcast. For more information about our church and everything we have going on, visit our website 
emmanuelcroydon.org.uk. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to see and hear what's going on in the life of our church. God bless you and have a wonderful week. Thank you.